We know the kitchen is where it all goes on. We chew the fat, make all of life's big decisions and eat straight from the tin when no one's watching. Join me, Anna Barnett, as I head straight to the heart of our guest home, where I swoon over interiors. I'm impressed by the sheer scale of a fridge and cover the most organised of freezers. We dig deep. Discuss career highs, career lows, condiment shelves and so much more. There's of course plenty of serious food chat. Each week we'll finish things off with our guests' best sandwich efforts and possibly a snoop in their fridge. Today's guest is a master of many skills. Her heavily cajoled entry into a TV cookery competition hunting out the next Fanny Craddock saw her launch her career in food. 9,000 applicants competed, but today's guest stole the show. Now an author of two cookbooks, a star of numerous TV spots, 2016 saw her open her own restaurant to much critical acclaim. My guest today has made her mark on the London food scene through her bold and unique approach to food that sees her draw inspiration from her African, British and Asian heritage. She fondly describes her food as mongrel cuisine, presenting plates that blur geographical boundaries with the sole aim of tasting good. Today's guest is the extremely talented Ravinda Bogle. Hi. Hello. Thank you for having me. What a lovely introduction. Well, I'm just glad that I managed to get it out. <laughs> well done. Just about. Um, welcome to the Filling Podcast. I'm so excited to be in your restaurant. I'm so delighted to have you here. I wish we were having lunch or dinner. Next time. But of course, we're closed. So yeah, next time. Next time. Absolutely. Um, Firstly, I want to ask you, um, as a chef that is used to working, you know, a crazy busy kitchen schedule, you know, all the evening shifts um, and thriving off the energy of that daily service, how have you managed to get through and kind of navigate the pandemic? Um, I know that you've been doing Comfort and Joy. So I'd love for you to just tell us a little bit about that project. I mean, I think um, it's... It's been a strange time for all people in hospitality because we're used to working those kind of crazy hours and you know being around lots of people. Of um, so it's been a it's been a massive shift. Um, some of it has been good, some of it has been bad. But we've we we need structure more than anything. I feel like for me, structure is the thing that works. So you know, as soon as we closed in March, uh, Nadim and I decided, my husband and I decided that we were going to start cooking for King's College. Hospital, because then at least three days a week we knew what our schedule was. Where we, it was, it was less less about being charitable and more about just having structure in our lives. <laughs> I'm and sure to, it wasn't to stop <laughs> to stop uh, ourselves killing each other in our yeah. one bedroom flat <laughs> just um, to keep the marriage alive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so so that was good, and and we got through that time, and it was really wonderful uh, to do. And then we started cooking for Nishkam Swat, who are an incredible organization whose kind of operational nous really impresses me. How they managed to deliver food to that many vulnerable people all over the UK, you know, from what essentially was one man's dream is is just really inspiring. Um, and, and actually, that really sort of inspired us to start Comfort and Joy. That was the beginning of it, because especially when we were cooking for the hospital and for, for you know, for Nishkam Swat, we realized certain things like 
Hospitals are just such international communities, yet you go to the canteen and you get fish and chips and it just doesn't seem right. And, you know, I said to Nadim, look, people are barely spending, these people who are frontline workers are barely spending any time with their families or at home because they're under such immense pressure. I want to give them something that tastes like home. So I don't want to give them restaurant food. I want to cook from my heart like I was cooking for my family or my friends. And I want to make the food really international. So for those people who are far away from home, they feel some sort of connection to home. So, you know, we would do Egyptian food, Lebanese food, Indian food, um, Asian food, food from everywhere, really. And and then that sort of informed comfort and joy because essentially what we were delivering to these people was comfort and joy. And it's what people needed. Well, we all need it more now than ever. Yeah. And it was just in, in having said that, those two words, that we suddenly thought this sounds, you know, what like, like it's what people need. Yeah. And let's make this happen. And also with everything that had happened, we felt that this really was a time to re-engineer the world around us, to look at things and think, what kind of world do we want to be a part of? So, okay, let's do this, but let's not make any compromises whatsoever. So the first uh, non-compromising thing was the packaging. Um, We'd seen so much plastic flying around and we were like, okay. So we took our time to really research. Actually, I can't take credit. It was Nadim who sort of really championed that and found this incredible packaging that basically is home compostable, turns to soil in 90 days. So zero plastic. We looked at shortening our supply chain so we we know where the food is coming from. You know, we're working with suppliers that we really trust. And then, you know, we wanted to continue that relationship with Nishkam Swat. So for every meal that we sell, we donate a meal to Nishkam Swat. So it feels like a very regenerative and positive project. You definitely do come across as someone that is a complete go-getter. You... Um, I mean, you've kept your entire team. You were telling me previously, we've had a really good natter before this, which was a huge error because now we can just, kind of, <laughs> oh, we don't need to talk about that. Um, but you've kept on your whole team throughout this yes. really challenging year long pandemic. It was, it was tough as a young business, you know, with Boris, I think what he did was so irresponsible by just saying avoid restaurants without actually mandating closures. Yeah. Um, so we closed before even he'd mandated it just because we felt, um, you know, there were people who work here who were living with high risk people and we just didn't want to endanger anyone's life. Um, so we closed and at that point, Nadim and I were like, shit, what are we going to do? Mm. And so we were very honest with everyone. So we picked up the phone to each of our employees and said, look, this is how much we've got in the bank. You know, we're going to treat it like a welfare pot. So everyone will get, you know, whatever we can give them for that week. And until the government make any plans or announce anything, this is until it runs out, we're okay. And, uh, and I remember the the day that they announced furlough, we were, we cried with relief. I of mean, course. you know, it was just, thank God, you know, there's something. So I think in that respect, you know. And is that, you know, does, does it go through your mind? Like this could be the end of our restaurant that we yeah, have worked. Yeah. Well, that we'd put everything for. into, you know, we don't have massive investors on anything. This is 
Nadim and I, what we've, you know, we've put everything, family money into this business. Right, right. And we had absolutely struggled for the first three years. You know, if any business is a struggle. Yeah. Um, so to, to be opening the fourth year thinking, wow, this is going to be such an amazing year. And we had all these incredible things lined up. And then for this to happen, you know, we were petrified, yeah. scared. Of yeah. Of course. Well, we are almost at the end. <laughs> there is light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. So fingers crossed that, you know, this the next time I come back here, this is going to be the, you know, revert back to that same thriving restaurant where it's I mean, I think that's people. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's all I think of now. It's like just being around people. That's what we've missed. And I think, you know, it's it's funny the more conversations I've had with people in hospitality the more I realize that we do this, um, you know, there's a kind of madness to doing restaurants. It's it's not a big money-making enterprise or something. So th there has to be a different kind of passion behind it. And for me, it's always been about a sense of community, being part of a community, serving a community, um, you know, being a, a kind of a healthy part of that organism that's a community. Yeah. And really, really... Um, doing doing something positive in that community but but for me more than that it's even just the kind of random sampling of humanity that you get in on any given night <laughs> and you know the characters that come in and the the interplay between you and them you know people kind of always ask me oh well, well what's been your proudest achievement and we've that's had that's one of my questions don't <laughs> don't ruin it <laughs> No, we've had the great and the good in here. Yeah, I, I mean, bet. people I would never have dreamt of c having the opportunity to cook for, to host. But more than that, it's at the end of the night when I'm leaving here and I look back and I see the twinkling, beautiful lighting that we planned in this yeah. restaurant and the lights twinkling, my genial team just being at their most wonderful best, the, the room packed with interesting people and everyone enjoying the food and wine that those are my proudest moments. That's when I feel the most happy. Yeah, I'm sure you do. And throughout this time, have you been able to kind of afford yourself a bit more time off, a bit more of a balanced life? Is that something that you'll continue should you have done that? Definitely. I think one of the things that I really had time to do over this period of time has been reading and writing more. I've always been a bookworm. You know, that started very early in, in my life. So I've gone back to reading again and writing. Um, you know, for me, the first couple of years, I felt, you know, because I was a journalist first, I felt um, like I was living a half-life because I was just here all the time. And, you know, there's 15 people um, you know, around you all the time. And I was used to living a very solitary life as a writer. And so to be able to go back to that sort of quiet luxury of writing has been a really positive thing for my mental health, I think. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. I I am one of those people that by the side of my bed, I've got cookery books, probably about 10, 12 deep. That yeah. Also make up a second kind of bedside stand. <laughs> and then there's all the papers that are kind of from the last two weeks that I've not quite got through. It yeah. just kind of builds up till my husband comes around and it's like, this is disgusting, yeah. is what he said to me this morning. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I'm just working my way through. <laughs> I was I was a bit overambitious because Nadim asked me what I wanted for my birthday last year. And I said, I'd really love a subscription to The New Yorker because I love reading their essays and things yeah. online. And I didn't quite realize it's weekly and it's so densely packed and they keep coming every You've week. Not got time. And I just don't <laughs> have the time. I'm not that fast at reading them. So yeah, that's been interesting. 
plans for the rest of the year just keeping on top of that yeah wallpapering <laughs> the house with the with new yorker covers um I'm also keen to ask you about your kitchen at home. I know we're in the restaurant now and you've got that incredible um, kind of open kitchen downstairs with the big um, family style table, which I'm dying to get a group of friends yeah. to come and sit around there. But what's, you know, what does the kitchen at home look like? The kitchen at home is, is sort of, um, you know, an organized chaos. I spend less time there. You know, when I'm doing yeah. my development, I tend to do it here just because everything is kind of, I've got everything here. Yeah. In fact, I keep bringing things from home and then forgetting to take take them back home. So my kitchen at home is a little sparser, but um, it's a, it's a very different kind of cooking that I do at home because I'm just cooking for me and my husband. Um, but yeah, in terms of you know, I'd say this is a kitchen I use more. And I think what was really nice is that when I was opening this restaurant and we were coming in to design it because it, there was nothing here, there was no kitchen. We were literally coming in with chalk and measuring, okay, this is how much the drawer will open out. Is there enough space for someone to walk behind someone? Yeah. All of that kind of stuff. You know, never having done anything like that was quite interesting. Um, but I wanted it to feel domestic in a way. And I remember my then business partners being like, you know, think about real estate and what that costs per square foot. And you have to have more covers and pack in as many covers as you can. And your kitchen should be half the size. And that space shouldn't be dedicated to a back kitchen. It should be dedicated to seating. And I was determined that that shouldn't be the case and that the team should have a decent amount of space to swing a cat and all of that. <laughs> to turn around. Yeah, and, to you know, make meringue. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we've actually got a really nice kitchen down here with lots of sort of very maternal touches like the poured concrete pass. And, you know, so it feels, it feels very mean that I don't come from a chefy background. I didn't go to culinary school. I didn't spend 16 years sweating over stoves. I came into this through a very unorthodox, very kind of domestic way. You know, I learned to cook in domestic kitchens and I feel that the restaurant really represents that. Yeah. I definitely, before we talk more about the restaurant, um, I just kind of wanted to talk about your written work because it's so apparent that uh, your written work is as much as a skill as your cooked work. Um, where does your true passion lie? And I know you kind of just touched on this now, but, you know, have you managed to bring together kind of both of your true passions? Like how, you know, this is dream scenario, I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think words are as, as important to me as food. And for me, you know, I've always sort of looked at words as, you know, I've always been full of admiration who, for people who can almost paint with words, who can create images um, that are so kind of um, tangible, you could almost touch them. Um, words touch me so much and words move me to tears and food can do the same too. Yeah. So I think I, I'm living the dream because I'm, I'm doing both and, you know, um, trying to improve every day at doing both. So whether, whether it's a dish I'm cooking or a story I'm telling, yeah. I'm equally passionate. And I think the two are sort of intertwined as well. You know, food is very much about story for me and recipes have always been like, stories with no endings that keep changing. And I think particularly the kind of food that I do, 
um, you know, immigrant cuisine is open to adaptation. So I always say our recipes are like stories with no endings. I think that's such a beautiful way to put it. Thank you. And we were talking a little bit beforehand and I've, you know, having had the opportunity to start really reading, you know, quite a bit of your work, I just have found it so enriching and evocative and colourful. Just like the way you kind of describe certain scenarios is just so beautiful. And you really, you know, you really have such a talent Thank for it. Sorry, you. being really... <laughs> Thank sick, you. But, you know, it's it's a really beautiful way that you kind of... That means so much to me, by the oh, way. Oh, that's so <laughs> really kind. Does. Well, I just, you know, I sat down with your book again this morning and just went through, you know, from the visuals within the book and the recipes to the stories. And I, you know, it is such, it's a cookery book that really kind of covers a bit more than cooking. You know, you feel like you're getting so much more than just that recipe, which yeah. I know people really strive to do. And it's not easy. I've written, a, you know, when you sit there and you think, okay, 140 recipes or 200 recipes, yeah. you know, it's a really, you know, it's no easy task. And I just wonder how you first decided what would make it into the book, how you would kind of bring it together. Did you have this vision? How did you, what did, what did that process look like? Because it's your second book as well. Yeah, I've always been a very visual person. You know, I worked uh, in women's magazines, so I worked in fashion and beauty. So I see things in, in words and images. And I've always been very, very kind of visually led. And one of the uh, you know, symbols of my sort of growing up because Giacconi has become quite, became, it wasn't meant to be, it ended up being this sort of very cathartic, uh, memoir-esque uh, book. Um, one of the major symbols of my childhood was this kind of chaos because we lived in this extended family. So my, my parents, my grandparents, my aunt and uncle, everybody's children, anyone who happened to be visiting from anywhere in the world. Um, my parents entertained a lot. My grandmother had a lot of religious functions. So there was always, you know, 25 people up for lunch or dinner. Perfect. Um, Sounds very relaxing. You know, exactly. <laughs> and and then in and amongst this, all of this, you know, chaos of people were animals. So, you know, there was cats, there was dogs, there was a, an African grey parrot who had learned to mimic my grandmother's voice and she swore like a trooper and he would swear in her voice. <laughs> And so everyone knew who the person with the bad language was right, in, the, right, in the house. So anytime we had guests or she was entertaining, she would cover his cage. So he went to sleep. Um, but, you know, there was always there was goats. There was like this Somali family across the road who had this herd of goats that would kind of break through our garden to come and, and feed and um, you know, chickens, there was a chicken shed and, uh, you know, a cat who'd given a litter of kittens. And it was just like, you know, nature and humanity colliding. Nothing was polite. You know, everything grew over each other. It was chaotic. And that became this kind of thing I became really obsessed with wanting to show people and that's why those openers have all those animals in them. And I remember going to Bloomsbury initially in the ideas meeting for the visuals saying, so I would like a budget for live animals. <laughs> they just looked horrified. Um, but I managed to convince them. I managed to persuade them in the end, uh, my vision uh, for the book. And it was so much fun. You yeah. know, we just had these incredible animals. Um, actually, we used this incredible guy 
who has adopted all these animals who were either thrown away or, you know, treated badly. And they take them around to like old people's homes or schools for, uh, you know, children with learning disabilities and they do therapy with the animals. And it's just quite incredible. So the animals are used to being handled by people. And I remember the shot we did with the beautiful chameleon and he said, Oh my God, he's so bright green. And you know, that means that when they they go that bright green, it means they're really happy. And that just gave me so much joy. He was called Felipe and he was so gorgeous and just the most elegant little creature. And he just crawled over my Cavalo Nero. He was amazing. He was oh my a star. God. <laughs> and how long did it take you to write the book and then also shoot it? Well, I had... Bearing in mind all the animals. Yeah. <laughs> so I had, we did two, uh, about three weeks of shooting. So two weeks, um, well, 10 days and then another five days or four or five days when the season had changed. Yeah. Um, so, but the animal shots were all done in one day, okay. actually. It was this chaos of one animal after the other. Um, but the animals were, it, it's weird. Everyone says never work with animals or children. Those that day when we shot the animals was the least chaotic day of our shoot. Oh, really? So it's quite amazing. <laughs> yeah, they were very well behaved. And, you know, there was that shot we did with the chicken and all those eggs. And I remember the foods, uh, the prop stylist had like, you know, done mounds and mounds of all of these eggs. And then we had this chicken in amongst them. And I was like, God, if that chicken flaps, that's just we're going to be eating omelets for days. <laughs> And not one single egg broke. It was incredible. Oh my just, God. Yeah, I was You're so brave. impressed. I'd be petrified of that just kind of flying off and creating complete chaos. Yeah, but she was called Belinda, Belinda the hen. Belinda the hen. <laughs> Belinda the hen. Then we had Felipe the torto, uh, the, um, the chameleon. We had um, Jennifer the cat, who was actually a friend of mine's cat. A dog called Pedro, who belonged to my friend as well. And then we had a tortoise called Olive. And did you feel like you achieved that kind of chaos that you knew growing up? I think we did. <laughs> and you know what was really wonderful? I shot with an incredibly talented photographer called Kristen Perez. And her studio just gave us this this opportunity to almost travel the world. So with every kind of setup, we were in Lisbon or we were in Jaipur or we were in Nairobi or it was just, it just lent itself so wonderfully to traveling the world in that little studio space. It was incredible. It really does take like extremely talented people for me for what growing up I didn't know that being a food stylist was even a thing and yeah I know I wish I'd known it's I, so much fun yeah and you know I have a friend that's a food stylist and she really is it's like she just creates magic in the most effortless way I've never seen yeah. someone kind of work like that you just say how did like show me that again <laughs> like, slow that down but like how did you do so that organized you have to be so yeah. organized and I had a food stylist uh, called uh, Joss Hurd working on the book who is just the most like her, even in terms of her personality and she's got the most infectious personality infectious laugh the kindest person as well yeah so I had such a great we're all women actually who worked on this book just a great team of women um you know and I, I feel that their spirit that you know the kind of um magic the fragile magic that they brought with them every day has actually been transported into the book so I'm very grateful to yeah. them and how has it been launching a book while 
kind of being kind of mid-pandemic? I mean, it's be, it's just very, very strange. It's very sad because, you know, you're, you don't get to do events or signings or, you know, festivals. And I'd planned to do a series of events around the book here at the yeah. restaurant. You can and do that again. Yeah. <laughs> I still time. Well, I'm hoping the book is a future classic. So. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was nice. And then, you know, to make up for it, my husband surprised me with these incredible um uh, kind of, uh, he made these curtains with the book printed on them and hung them up as curtains in the restaurant. So that was really lovely. So the day Such the book launched idea. was actually the day we were allowed to open restaurants at the end of lockdown one. And I came <laughs> to the restaurant and he'd put these up and I was like, oh, this is so nice. You have a very, very good, well-behaved husband. <laughs> um, He'll <and> do. <laughs> what's his um, What's his involvement in the restaurant? Because I know you have the restaurant together, but you are very much the, the chef and the foodie yeah. side of things. <clears throat> what does he do and how do you make it work? Because I can't quite imagine doing that with my husband. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's been a huge learning curve. So Nadim... Um, also has a, another business of his own. So he runs oh, wow. a, a company called Creative Family who do kind of uh, business design strategy, interiors for restaurants, uh, digital branding, all that kind of stuff. Wow, okay. So they work mainly for people in the food space. So of course, when I met him, I was like, you know, in for a penny. <laughs> <laughs> this will work. This, this will is perfect. Work. This is great no, At the time when I met him initially, he and his brothers had set up a tea company called Lilani & Co., and they were getting um, these incredible teas from all over the world, from single estate gardens. And it was like the champagne of tea, like really, really high-end tea. Some of those gardens only ever produced 10 kilograms of tea a year. So it was the rarest tea in the world. And he um, had heard about, or his brother had heard about me, and I was doing pop-ups and things at the time. And he sent Nadim to come and talk business with me. And I remember him turning up to this, I was doing an event and I hadn't seen these two friends of mine for like a year. And he just kind of hung around and they were like, when is this guy leaving? And I was like, <laughs> I don't know. And that night... That's my a technique. If, you, if you're the last one at the party, if you yeah. hang around long enough, that's... <laughs> yeah. that's and I remember my friend at the, you know, at this thing saying to me at the end, you know, you're going to end up married to this guy. And I was seeing somebody else at the time. So I was like, there's absolutely no way. I mean, how what a ridiculous thing to say. And, and now he's like, see, I called it. <laughs> and so that, that sort of ensued in this sort of six weeks of, uh, I was doing all these pop-ups and things and Nadim would turn up and he'd book every single one, even if I was doing the same food three nights running. So it, it felt like I had a stalker all of a sudden. So I was like, well, do I take out an injunction? <laughs> yes, paperwork to marry him. So, really confused so, about this. Yeah. So I married him. Um, but yeah, he, so he runs his own thing and they've just also launched another project, which I'm, so they, they always wanted to do brands under their own sort of company. Right. So they've launched this really exciting juice called Wild Press, okay. um, literally launched yesterday. Um, so Wild Press is uh, an apple juice. So he came up with the idea because he was visiting all these farms and a lot of them were producing apples and apples have an incredible history in Britain. There okay. are varieties that we've never even heard of, um, you know, that have, they've been named after Vicar and they, they just have so much story 
and most of them don't make it to market. Um, farmers can't make any money off, off, on them. So he thought, why don't I start pressing these um, and really talking about the farms? And the whole point is to have this brand that encourages biodiversity, that encourages farmers to, you know, they can uh, have money from from the juices, that encourages them to go organic, biodynamic, whatever it is. So it's this really kind of socially positive juice company that just concentrates on really interesting varietals of British apples. And uh, it's really delicious. I think it's like the new wine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I definitely want to try it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I will give you some to try. Definitely. It's delicious. Um, So you both are just permanently... Living in a state of chaos. We like it that way. Exhausted. But yeah, and then he obviously here, he's been intrinsic in helping me run this business because it's so all consuming. And to have a partner who really supports what you do, and he's so good at the business side of things and finance and all that kind of stuff. So he, he's been doing all of that and more managing me. He sounds amazing. (gasps) I actually also consider myself to be quite lucky. My husband is that same person that will kind of do all the fast pedaling behind while you can kind of show up sometime on on occasion and be like, oh, hi, this is working out. He makes me look good. Okay, that's a nice, (laughs) we can both agree on that. Yeah. Um, I love the premise behind your cooking and I'm kind of really excited for you to kind of talk more about this now because um, you enthusiastically really kind of scrap the rule book and combine just all the flavors and foods of the world that you love and appreciate. And maybe like you can just tell us a bit more about some of your favorite dishes or dishes that really would define uh, the restaurant here. Sure. Um, So I think the food, you know, we always talked about mixed heritage food. And I think it comes from being an immigrant because when you know, you you have to learn to adapt. You have to be learn to be really resourceful. When you arrive in a country, first of all, everything, you know, you're missing home, you're pining for, for home. And initially you go through this stage of becoming very, very precious about your culture and preserving it. And it's a sort of self-preservation as well. I think you mentally go through that. And then as you begin to settle, suddenly what was once barren seems very fertile because you've find yourself, you know, surrounded by all these like new, um, the newness of new culture, whether it's the culture of your new nation or all the immigrant sort of mini economies that you, that live, you live around. And I think that feeds into your culture and your food and that informs how you cook. So, you know, I remember shopping at the, the Indian shop, shopping at the Chinese supermarket, shopping at the Turkish supermarket, all of that. And it just feeds into, and that becomes how you cook. And of course, you know, um, when you're living in those kinds of communities, you, you're, you know, you find yourself surrounded by people who may not have very much, but they are also the kindest, most generous people who invite you home for dinner and you're discovering their food and hearing their stories and that's kind of how I grew up and that really informs the way I cook Um, and and for me food has always been about story so um, you know I think that kind of no borders way of cooking is also a very healthy way of cooking because it's in a way, it's a bit of a political statement. Like we have here um, a pronto scotch egg, which is like the love child of a British scotch egg and a Chinese prawn toast, two perennial favorites. And yet when you bring them together, you're creating something that I think is the 
better than the sum of its parts. And I think that also speaks volumes about what happens when you integrate cultures, you know, when you diversify, you know, a, a country it just becomes better. The more influences there are, the, the the better it is, the tastier the food. So I love doing things like that. But I'm also obsessed with um, story and, you know, get I get very inspired by uh, people's stories or things I watch. Like there was a documentary I saw about Italy and how in the early 2000s they were really... Um, in hot water because they couldn't get the workforce they needed to produce cheese. And of course, we all love Parmesan and mozzarella and all of that. And no one wanted to work those long hours for the little, you know, pay that they were getting, you know, not great margins in making cheese. And um, and so they started this immigrant program and they started getting farmers from Punjab, which is my ancestral state, um, to come over to Italy and start working on the dairy industry because the Punjabis are known to be experts at dairy. And I just was really wowed by this story of immigration, this new immigration in the 2000s. And I was thinking, you know, these people are going to settle in Italy, these Indians. And what is that going to look like as they start having children, as they start settling? How is that going to, that going to affect their cuisine? What does that taste like, that integration? And so we came up with God, this. I feel like I'm salivating. I'm thinking of all the most like amazing kind of produce from both sides and how yeah. that comes together. So we we did this dish, which is um, a paneer nudi. So we make nudi, which are like little dumplings made normally out of ricotta, but we made th- make them out of paneer, which we make fresh here. We make the paneer and then we mix it with parmesan and then we make these really light, fluffy dumplings, uh, which we boil and pan fry with butter. And then we serve them with sag, which is a North Indian spinach sauce, and cavolo nero, Italian greens, pickled lemon, preserved lemon, pine nuts, and lots more parmesan on top. And for me, that's a love letter to this integration that happened between the North Indians I and the Italians. <laughs> I need it's it. So I need yummy. that dish right now. It's so green. It's like Popeye's dream. <laughs> yeah, that sounds incredible. And have you ever felt that you've needed to kind of bravely tread this path? Or have you felt quite kind of, you've, did you start out being like, this is how it should be. This is just delicious. And this is good enough. It doesn't need to be one type of cuisine. Yeah. Or it doesn't need to be identified as this, this or this. I remember like laughing a bit initially when people would ask me things like, oh, so what's the concept of your restaurant? And I just felt uh, that the word concept was just so kind of nosebleedy in a way. It, you know, for me, I only ever wanted to cook the kind of food I would cook for my family and friends. And that's all it was ever about. And this is a very natural way for me to cook. This is how I've always cooked. Um, But I think I've been a little bit more vocal about it because, you know, people come in and they see me and they see a brown girl and they think this is going to be Indian food and they're going to get biryani and naan. And at which point I always point them to our wonderful neighbors, Trishna next door, where they can get an excellent biryani or an excellent (laughs) Very delicious as well. Yeah, very delicious. And but, you know, this has, this has never been that. This is, a, and it's only when people eat the food that they kind of understand, okay, so this is, this is, this is where the, you know, the ideas are coming from. This is why. And I think for me, it was always a very subconscious thing that I only have really been able to 
put into words off late, you know, when I think about what led me to Jaconi and why I'm doing this. And I think it comes from a place of coming to this country when I was seven was a shock to my system. I you arrived- have written so beautifully about this, like in a really, like in a way that is so evocative of just that state of shock, I think yeah. is what really comes across. You know, you come from this place, which and is like, and like, it was, yeah. it, 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 it was, so, it, I read it and it was traumatic. It was a very traumatic time. You know, you imagine being a child living in a country that is so sort of warm and, um, you know, where you have so many open spaces where at night it's pitch black, you can only see stars. And then suddenly you're in this very urban, very kind of haggard Southeast London, Kent borders, um, looking and sounding very different. Um, you know, my accent the way I thought my culture, everything was very different. And I went to a school where I got really horribly bullied for it because children can be so cruel. And, and it wasn't just the children. It was, it was teachers too. You know, it was adults who had all these expectations, uh, off you. And I felt that I really struggled because I was always being assimilated into a version of Englishness into which I could never fit because I sound different. I look different. My body is different. My culture is different. The way I think is different. And yet here I was being, you know, shoehorned into this one size fits all. And I just struggled and I grew up struggling and I never felt like I quite fitted in anywhere. And I think Jaconi was this sort of subconscious uh, utopia in a way that I created so that I could have a place to fit in. And now when I see how international our crowd is, you know, there was one very happy evening here where we had the big table right there, actually, that extended it. There were about 10 people, young, very gorgeous people. And there was a Palestinian, an Egyptian, a Lebanese person, an Indian person, a person from Paris. And everyone who ate the food, like I went and chatted to them for quite a while afterwards, they were like, oh, this reminds me of my grandmother's this. And my mother used to make something like this. And this food speaks to everyone. There is something nostalgic in all of our dishes that speaks to everyone, no matter where you're from. And that gives me great pride and joy. Oh my God. And it absolutely should. I'm like sitting here, just really nodding along, smiling all my teeth out. Um, But it's so heartwarming to hear that, especially having kind of gone through such a trauma growing up, you know, and they're your formative years that can really, you know, affect you to such a degree. So to feel like, you know, I'm sat in your happy place where it's all kind of come good. And there's, you know, this amalgamation of everything that is brilliant that you've kind of learned from your travels. And I know kind of just from reading a lot of your written work that you love to travel and this appreciation for Italian cuisine and tiramisu and all sorts of things like that, that you've kind of managed to bring together in this one place and just create food that is vibrant and exciting. And yeah, I love I love that. I, it feels like it should be such a cele- you know, you should and I'm sure you do really celebrate this. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. You know, it's just wonderful to be able to, you know, I think I'm so fortunate to work in an industry where we get such instant gratification because, you know, you see people coming in sometimes and they are quite sort of tightly wound up or they've had a bad day. And then you see them and it's, it happens before your eyes. You see them sit down and I have to 
really shout about my team here. They are the most wonderful people in hospitality. They really understand the difference between the technicalities of service, which, you know, we should always get right because that's about polished cutlery and, and, and a warm room and, you know, music at the right level. That we, everyone can do that because you can train that. But that emotional empathy that these people have, they're such good people. They just know how to make people feel good. And that combined with this very maternal food that we make here, this food that has been cooked very kind of intuitively and to nurture and nourish people, that combination, you see people begin to unfurl and sort of almost purr. And it's such a wonderful feeling. Yeah. You feel like you're doing something good. I I will say this every time you go out that, you know, there's 50% of what makes up a great night is the food. And then, the you know, it can really be ruined by staffing a bit shirty or a bit, you know, whether it's too much or not enough, you know, it's not easy to get it right. But, you know, when people do or when you just feel that connection with your the staff yeah it can take a night that was you know great food to a night being a really memorable night it's I mean, so the, important the amount of lovely things that we have said about the team here and I've always said to them you know service and to be able to serve is a privilege because you have two two and a half hours with a stranger and you've got them for those two and a half hours and to be able to transform their day, what we do is transformative. To be able to do that is such a privilege. How, how many people do you know who get to do that? To change someone's life in those two and a half hours, it's just a really, really positive thing to do. I, I, I love being part of the industry for that reason. I love that approach. I don't think I've heard anyone kind of put that so eloquently and so kind of think about it in that way. But it's so true. There's, there's meals that I could really kind of pull out that have been so special because of those two and a half hours or four or yeah, you know, longer yeah. that you've spent with people that have really made a difference. And yeah. that's such a beautiful way to kind of think about it. I love yeah. that. Was there ever a moment that you doubted yourself or your capabilities or what you were doing here? Oh my God, a hundred percent, you know, all the time, even now you have moments of complete, you know, fear. But I think in the first few months, especially, you know, I felt that I had come essentially off the back of winning a television competition and this this industry was, you know, full of very, very kind of accomplished chefs. That's a lot of pressure for a, a little girl who's basically learned to cook from her mom to come into an industry. I felt I had to really prove myself and I had to really earn my stripes. And I really beat myself up. I was really unkind to myself, actually. I spoke to myself in the most ugly and harsh way at why times. Do, why do we do that? Yeah, it's... You would never speak to anybody else in that way and yeah, expect them to go yeah. on with their day and flourish. The, you know, the lack of compassion, I think we show ourselves and the pressure that we put ourselves under is so unhealthy. And, you know, I, I felt I had to prove myself to my business partners. I had to prove myself to uh, the haters, you know, to the people who doubted me, to the, you know, everyone, to 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 the guests who were coming in. And we had such pressure in the first 
two weeks, although we'd launched fairly quietly, we had, you know, every single food critic in, in Britain had like in London had come within two weeks of us opening. It's quite a lot of pressure. But you have big fans within the food critics world, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I've been, been lucky, but it was, it was a lot and I doubted and I, you know, always sort of uh, think, my goodness, you know, what am I doing? I don't even know what I'm doing. And it, and is that I, a I didn't. female thing? Is that, is that, but, but you know, truly I didn't at the beginning. I hadn't figured it out. I had to make those mistakes. You know, I had to learn the hard way. You know, even things like hiring, I didn't realize how important it is to build your company culture. You know, it, it is chicken and egg and you have to have that down and you have to be loud and proud and shout about your values and the, you know, your, your kind of, um, the core of what you believe in because if you don't proudly speak about that you're never going to attract the right people yeah. and I think it's only now that we've started really talking about these are our values this is what we believe in these are our ethics this is why we run a restaurant this is who you know why we want to be part of this community it's only then that you start attracting all these incredible people who think just like you so I think that was my main learning curve was the hiring had to be right you know I always say that restaurants are like a living, breathing organism. And to be healthy, you have to make the right choices. And that's whether that choice is about who you hire, whether it's the suppliers you're using, you know, all of those things really matter because they're all an extension of the body of the restaurant. Yeah. And where do you think that drive came from? Because, I mean, mm. it takes a lot. And just having kind of spent this short amount of time with you, you know, it is, it's, you live and breathe it. There is no moment off or out. Like, you know, yeah. where does that come from? And that ambition and that work ethos. I think it comes from a few different places. I think one of the first things is uh, my grandfather was always a huge inspiration to me. He was just one of the most kindest, loveliest men, but also a real pioneer. He left his home in India in the 1940s with nothing in his pocket um, and sort of took this uh, voyage in the dark to go to Kenya. And initially the boat that he got on, he'd got, he'd gone with his brother. They sailed for something like 26 days and ended up back in India because something had gone wrong with the boat. So, you know, they'd wasted their money. And his brother was like, I'll never do that again. And, you know, this wasn't, it wasn't like they were sailing on the Titanic and it was all like lovely. They saw real hardship on those boats. And yet he took that journey again. And when he land, landed in Kenya, he just fell in completely in love with this landscape and decided that's where he was going to lay down our roots. And he built himself up from nothing. He And he did that because nothing can replace good old-fashioned hard work. There is no substitute for that. And I think he taught me that early on. He also taught me the importance of community and service because he, being Sikh, he was deeply entrenched in this idea of something called seva, which means community service. And you're nothing without your community. And the biggest, and the what he used to say to me, you know, everyone has to do community service. And the easiest way to do community service is just by feeding people. And for me, that became this thing, this idea, this ideology that I held on to. But I think it, I'm also, um, 
you know, he was kind of quite um, stubborn in that he got an idea in his head and he was like, I can do this. And he was very brave. And I think I've learned from his bravery because coming from a family as the fourth daughter of very orthodox Indian parents, having a father who didn't un- believe that women should be educated at all, who... Um, Did that ever change for him? Did you, Were you able to show him that that yes, wasn't the way? towards the end. So when he was very ill, he was... I think it all completely flipped on its head because he really saw what I was capable of. And it was weird because he gave me what I guess he thought was a compliment. And I take it as that because he, when he was ill ill in hospital, he said to me, you know, you haven't been a daughter. You've been like a son for me because he saw my strength. But that was the only way he knew how to elocute it, right? And I take that. Like in a way, it feels so fortunate to be able to be kind of infuriated by that when actually that's the culture and that's what he he knows and has has grown up with. So you have to have compassion for that. But, you know, I was told, um, you know, you'll cook and you'll clean, but it'll be for your husband and your children. And, you know... That was what, those were the parameters that were set for me. And that's was what that, I... Sorry, I'm so sorry to no. interrupt, but was that still the case having kind of grown up and from the age of seven been in the UK? Was that still very much believed? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So like, I mean, my sisters also, like my third sister grew up in this country, but, you know, in her 20s, my sister, my parents were like, you have to get married. And she took that path and she thought that was her choice and that was her fate. And, you know, she didn't want to upset my parents and that was the culture and and she did that and i think i had seen that four ti- three times over before me and i was determined that that is not the choice i want i wanted to study and so i was the first girl in my family to be allowed a university education and i think that was for me the turning point it wasn't so much the education but it was going out into the world and realizing that the parameters were much wider, actually, than the ones that had been set for me. And, you know, I I think that was it. And the, so everything I was told was wrong. And I, I think that just gave me that drive of, I can. So was that kind of your late teens? Is that when the penny dropped for you that it's the world is your oyster, it can all happen? Anything, I think it wasn't even so much my teens. It was uh, because I remember doing things like my A-levels and I was like, well, why am I really doing this? I'm just going to get married and that'll be my right. life. And, you know, that's what I believed. But it was really in my 20s or like late teens. When Once I was at university, then I realized that, yes, and I remember my my dad, who was completely not interested in my education or completely out of touch with what my who I was as a person. He didn't know me as a person. You know, I was just a girl number four. Um, and I remember he said to me, you can either do law, accountancy or pharmacy if you're going to go to university. And I was like, well, I'm not doing any science A-levels, so that doesn't make sense. And I... I'm terrible at maths, you know, I can barely add up. So that's not going to happen. And so I chose a law degree grudgingly. And I'd been doing, uh, I did a semester of law and I hated it so much. I was like literally sitting at the back writing poetry while the, the lessons were going on. And so I secretly changed my course to English and didn't tell anyone until I graduated. So I, I just followed my passion. And 
I just look back at my sort of 20, you know, 19 year old self and think, wow, I had balls. Yeah, Yeah. I'm right there with you. I think that's amazing. And I guess it carved out the path, like paved the way for everything that's kind of followed, which is just incredible. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I'm sat here really in awe. (laughs) Yeah, this is so incredible. I think, I think, you know, that resilience, women have it. And I, I hear, I'm, I also think I'm so lucky because this restaurant, I don't know what it is about this restaurant, this space. It sometimes feels like hallowed ground, like, like wonderful spiritual ground because there's a church right behind us, but we attract the most incredible people, women mainly with such incredible stories to tell. And, you know, I get into conversations here and I've made friends with people because of being here. And, you know, there's like a woman who comes here called Dr. Aisha Gill. She's a professor and she's a criminologist. And she has, she, I first met her because she was looking for a venue to have a party because she was being given a CBE, I think, by the Queen. And she's young. She's only 40 something. And the reason she was getting it was because she's dedicated her entire life to fighting violence against women. And she's a criminologist and a specialist in that field. And, you know, hearing all these incredible stories of women and survival and resilience and I don't know what, you know, they say like attracts like, but I think that I have attracted this very unique guest who comes to this restaurant. I love our guests. We were so lucky. I want to work my way in and (laughs) be one of those local guests. You're coming. You're coming downstairs table. (laughs) I know. I want that for my birthday. I want that for everyone's birthday. It's just the most magical. I love seeing that kind of open kitchen, seeing it all go on and then kind of, and the noise of it as well. Yeah. The smells and like the intense hit of flavors when. It is the best table. It is, isn't it? And then you've kind of got your own little party going on as well. I just think those spaces are like, sometimes when they're kind of a room off from the restaurant, you feel like you're missing out, but down there feels like something extra special because it's very cozy downstairs yeah. it's kind of very like you're in the middle of the kitchen you're in the middle of the action there I like that especially if you're not doing anything that's even better yeah. <laughs> if you're not actually kind of covered in all sorts of food prep and god knows what yeah. doing the work that's even better how does it feel for you having people like Yotam Montalengi and Jay Rayner and Dinah Henry and Nigella Lawson singing your praise because I I mean that's good. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really uh, unbelievable. I mean, we they say, you know, the, the highs in restaurants are really high and your lows are really low. It's true. We're like this. If we were a graph, <laughs> it would be up and down. But those moments have been complete highlights for me. Like people like as generous as Yotam, you know, he's so generous, so kind and, you know, just so, uh, yeah, it's, it's wonderful to be a... Uh, a restaurant where other chefs come, you know, people like Simon Hopkinson, who just like such lovely people who've come and they've come again and again. It, it, it just gives you that confidence, especially when you're not a, a chefy chef as such. Yeah. You're, I still call myself a cook. I still believe I'm a cook. And I remember when Adrian Gill wrote his review of us, there was a line that made me cry at the end and more so because obviously he, you know, passed away around that well, time. Don't tell me because I feel emotional as it is today. Go yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he, he'd said something about, and because he was such a smart man and he was able to elocute things about us that we hadn't even had the words to say. And there was something at the end where he said something about, you know, there are all sorts of people in this world you can't trust, politicians, car salesmen, whatever it is. 
but a cook. You can always trust a cook. And that's what he felt about this place. And that just felt really, really special. So that, you know, having people like that here, you know, your heroes, people who you've grown up worshipping. And I said this particularly about Nigella Lawson recently, and I, I don't know her well, but she's come to the restaurant and everything. I feel like I know her because I've read her books, but I don't want to be one of those weird, like, you know, author stalkers. But her her book... Like I am you today. <laughs> her book, you can stalk away. It's fine. You and Nadim. Uh, you know, I remember when that book came out, you know, How to Eat. I was an 18-year-old shop girl working at Selfridges, my first, you know, year of university. Um... Uh, you know, having no money. And I remember the book came out and I bought it and it was, I think it might've been Christmas time. And I was doing those long journeys home from like Selfridges to Kent, you know, Southeast London, Kent borders home. And I would read that book on the train. And it was like someone had opened a window and light and air had come in. That is exactly how it felt. And I think it's then that inspiration sort of struck. And I didn't immediately think, oh, I want to be a chef and open a restaurant or I want to be a food writer. No. But there was something so powerful about what she'd done that just clung onto my heart and rooted itself. And I do credit her for for that, for my love of writing about food, for my love of cooking in that kind of very maternal way and having the confidence to do that too, because I think she brought a lot of that to what was otherwise a very kind of restauranty, a very kind of male space. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I am eternally grateful to to her for that and then to have her come to the restaurant and she loves the scrag and pie here that was incredible talk to us about that dish oh my god the scrag and pie (laughs) you know again it comes from from that sort of mixing of cultures so it's basically a spiced up shepherd's pie but it's quite special because we use either mutton if we can get it or lamb and we use the scrag which is the neck part and we cook it overnight with really gorgeously aromatic spices like black cardamom, which is like tobacco spice, uh, smoky uh, green cardamom, which is fragrant, you know, chili, ginger, garlic, all these real kind of power players. Uh, but that balance beautifully when you cook them overnight over a long period of time, really slow cooked. And then when we come in in the morning, we put our gloves on and we pick all the meat off and we reduce the, the, the sauce. And of course, all the bones have all that marrow and deliciousness that has just gone into the sauce. And then we kind of reduce the sauce and put it, pour it back into the meat. And it just is just it's like a it's like eating a hug on a plate it really is it's I mean I grew up on shepherd's com- pie cottage pie food yeah, yeah but th- that feels like a whole round two <laughs> and then like I'm always generous with the mash because I feel like you know with a dish like that you can't be stingy with no, the mash no, no, so no. it's like it's almost like insulation you know if an uh, if an Eskimo were to insulate their house I imagine them putting this mash because it's so warming and we we infuse it with um with turmeric and uh lovely spices again the cardamoms and everything we infuse the milk and cream in that so it gets this almost sort of very smoky flavor and then because of the turmeric I can just feel myself leaning in (laughs) like you are leaning in um 
it, it it's it's a very come to mama kind of uh, kind of. I'm uh, interested. Yeah. yeah, it's it's one of those dishes that just makes everyone feel very very comforted. Yeah. Um. Was there a dish? Was there a time that you remember cooking for somebody or for an event or something where you, you thought, okay, no, this could this is special. This is something that I can share, or I'm good enough at this, or this, you know, I've got this talent. Uh. So in my early days, before I had the restaurant. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was very much in those times when I was doing sort of the pop-ups and private catering and all of that. Um, and I ended up getting booked by a lot of chefs to do their private events, which is always such a huge compliment. So there was a the wonderful, uh, yeah, there was a wonderful chef called Bruno Lube and his wife called, called me and said, um, is he grain store? Yeah, yes. that's right. Okay. They live in Australia now. Yeah. Um, so she called me and said, oh, we're having an anniversary party and, you know, would you mind, you know, catering for us? I was like, would I mind? Of course I'm there. I'll do it for free. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I ended up, and of course, because he was a chef, he had all these chef friends. And one of the chefs uh, happened to be Brett from the Ledbury. And, you know, like oh, this huge, yeah. like, you know, I mean, come on. And I was so nervous. I remember being like, don't fuck it up sorry <laughs> no, no. and um and anyway so I I was in the kitchen and Brett walks in and he's like oh my god those pronto scotch eggs are insane and I just thought oh he's such a nice guy he's been really kind to me and then about three weeks after that his wife called me and said oh Brett's having a birthday party and really wants you to cater it so would you come to her and I couldn't believe it I couldn't believe someone of my caliber just a home cook was getting an invitation to cook for one of the best chefs in the world at his house and I remember she called the his wife called me like it was really late at night the night before his event and she said oh my god I've done something really stupid I've forgotten to get him a birthday cake is there any way you could That's like the worst knock call to something get. up <laughs> and no. I knew and I was like oh my god what do I do and I was like madly looking around for ingredients and I remember thinking, you know what? I'm going to make him an ice cream cake. So I made this like ridiculous three-tier like rose coffee cake. And I had to sit in this taxi going across town to their house with this thing on my lap. And I got to their house like panting and panicking because this thing was going to melt. And I was like, I need freezer space. And he's like, I'm really sorry. My freezer's full. And I just looked at him like, are you kidding you've got to empty, <laughs> empty your freezer right now and I remember opening his freezer and inside was the freezer fish fingers? no <laughs> or waffles it was hilarious waffles. there was like a black bin bag in his uh freezer like no drawers or anything everything had been pulled out with just this black bin bag and I was like is that body in there or something <laughs> And it kind of was, so it was like, you know, because he was really into shooting and everything. So it was a stag's, an entire stag's head and the pelt rolled up. And I was like, I just looked at him and went, that's got to go. <laughs> Pulled it out, stuck Otherwise, my no ice cream cake. no one's singing you happy birthday tonight. Yeah, <laughs> stuck my ice cream cake in and then took a big, you know, sigh of relief. That is the most brave thing I think I've heard anyone do. I hope it wasn't like midsummer when it was like oh 30 God. degrees. I can't even remember now. It wasn't, no, it wouldn't have been that hot. But Otherwise, that was still a very brave and he was happy it all went to plan. It was an amazing night. Yeah, it was, it was such an incredible night. And, you know, it's just... I was feeling your fear there. I feel like I've, I've been there where you're just like, it was something that hasn't quite, you know, 
been yeah part just of the like, plan. I think it's always, uh, you know, uh, difficult cooking in spaces that you don't know. Like, just even someone's oven sometimes. Yeah. You're a bit like, ah. Oh. oh my God, talking <laughs> of ovens, I, I did a night at uh, three nights at Black's and they had an ancient oven that just wouldn't light. And I was like, oh my God, how am I going to do anything? This thing is just not lighting. And I remember being covered in grease trying to figure it out. But, you know, you do it and I think there's a there's a big learning curve and it gives you the confidence to then do something like this. But, you know, even that couldn't have prepared me for the enormity of what it is to open a restaurant. It really is. I mean, I think I still have the scars oh, really? from that first year. Is it like renovating? Because that's quite stressful as well. Uh, I don't I've never <laughs> renovated I anything. But, you know, I remember then I was newly married and people would like sort of you know, say to me things like, oh, well, when are you going to have a baby? Are you thinking about having a baby? Which I think is a really rude question to I ask, think that by is the as way. Well. Which, by the way, as you get older, people love to be like, oh. Yeah. Like, and I'm like, anything? stop being so nosy. <laughs> I, I've had to tell people. I remember someone asked me, I was at a book, a book event and it was very strange because I was uh, standing... A, they're practically saying, are you having sex? Yeah. Is what's yeah. Like, that's the same question. You know, no one knows what's going on in people's lives. No. And that event, I remember, was uh, I was standing with this lovely girl who actually writes a blog about the fact that she has had so much... Um, trouble conceiving and it's been so traumatic for her and we just finished having a conversation and this woman comes along and you know she's close in my to my age so she should absolutely know better it's not like she's some old Indian auntie because old <laughs> Indian aunties get away with asking those questions but she was like so you are you having kids soon then just open a restaurant I'm and this I is was the baby just like yeah so I always say well this is my baby and it's one that never bloody stops crying there's always <laughs> something wrong with it <laughs> I feel like we might have just answered this but what are you most proud of what am I most proud of oh my god you know I'm most proud of everything and everyone that is taken to make this ship run yeah really I am incredibly proud of my team here they are such good people you know to be able to attract um people to who want to be part of your journey who want to um sail that ship with you is is a really wonderful thing I just trust them wholeheartedly and it, it's that's a, it's a very good feeling that three years in four years in I'm able to have space from the restaurant. I'm able to not be here and know that people are running it to my incredibly high standard. <laughs> That's honest of you to acknowledge that. <laughs> and what do you still want to achieve? Where, where will you be in 10 years time? Oh God, God knows where I'll be. But hopefully, you know, this place, we we we, we come from... Um, you know, a line of people from my father to my in-laws who are the most inspirational people who have always been into the idea of long, slow-burning, solid businesses. My my in-laws are both optometrists and they've had their practices for over 35 years each. They're parts of community, they are a, the hub of communities. And that is what I would really like. This was never meant to be some sort of gimmicky, you know, flash in the pan. This was always meant to be here for a long time, to serve a community over a long time. I want to be able to see, you know, people grow old around here. Um, and so that is part of the plan 
to just keep doing good work, to to keep writing, I think that is that keeps me sane. Um, and just yeah, to just keep being a good member of my community, I think that's that that's all I can hope for. Well, I think that's a really good goal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very impressed and ashamed of my own. <laughs> um, what advice would you offer anybody else starting out in this business? Um, I think mentors are really important. Um, I didn't really have mentors because I didn't know they existed and wasn't that no one, no one offered me any help, but it kind of came much later. And I think I was really lucky because, um, when I was still sort of this kind of waif who didn't know what I was doing, um, I was very lucky because I, I got this opportunity to present this show on channel four and Jay Rayner happened to be my co-host and to have someone like him who I, I describe him as a mouth on legs to eat your food, to enjoy it. And then to say, well, have you ever thought about going into the restaurant trade? Cause your food is really nice and you should, you should go and learn about that trade. And no one had ever told me that before. I didn't even know it was like when you said you didn't know food styling was a thing. Yeah. I didn't know it was possible for me to go and cook in a restaurant kitchen. I didn't you know, I didn't think it was, it was for me. Um, and just having someone like that, someone older and ex more experienced and someone that well-respected telling you that just lit something in me. And I followed that and I followed his advice. And he still to this day can't believe that I took him so seriously and actually went and he did it. He doesn't take it back. <laughs> I know, he, he doesn't take it back. But there are days when, you know, I want to call him up when I've had a bad day. <laughs> where I want to be him. like, I really hate your guts. <laughs> Thanks for this. And then just hang up immediately. Yeah. <laughs> And so I guess for people that love food and are passionate about it, but maybe don't have the confidence, like I, what, you know, do the pop-ups, do just cook, try everything. Yeah. Is that the... And, you know, I love there are certain people in the industry like Ravneet Gill, like what she does with Counter Talk. I find her so completely inspiring because she's so transparent yeah. with everything. And I just, I just, I, I hold, when I watch her things, I'm like literally holding on to her every word because she's so young, but she's so switched on. Yeah. And I think we need more people like that. People talking about the ugly truth of everything because there are you know in this world there are ugly truths as well there are sacrifices to be made everyone knows that if you are going to go off and become a chef it does involve long hours and sacrifice and all of that but there should be a light at the and at the end of the tunnel there should be people should feel that there is opportunity and hope and 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 mentors and kind people to yeah. to to see them through the hard times yeah and when London is back up and running, which restaurants will you be running back out to? Oh my God, there are so many I've really been missing. So my husband and I have a ritual of going to the Wolseley quite often because oh, it, it just, just always makes you feel so special. So even if I am, I, I hope this is never the case, but I imagine even if I only had kind of my last five pounds, I might just go and, and buy that kind of final coffee there or something because it's just but that's transformative. The thing. You could... I've, yeah, I feel that the Wolseley and actually all Corbin King, King restaurants are for everybody. The Delaunay, yeah. You know, you can go in wearing 
uh, jeans or you can or go ball in gown. wearing could, a ball gown <laughs> and no one bats an eyelid no. no one cares and I love that they always remember your name they always kind oh, of you really look. are regular <laughs> <laughs> they always you know they they're always really happy to see you the attention to detail is impeccable what it do you just, eat what do you oh, have I love schnitzel same yeah I feel um, like you know with on the a, egg uh, yeah on the a, or, or no sometimes I just have it in in a burger <laughs> yeah the chicken schnitzel burger is such a oh, good I've not thing had that. with a with a side of pickled cucumber because I am like condiment queen. I'm obsessed with Same. all sorts of pickles and sauces and condiments. And then I also love on a Saturday night they do you know they do those like weeknight specials and then like it changes every yeah, night. Yeah. And Saturday night is Chicken Kiev night, and I it's lo- so simple, but I just love it. Yeah. You know, for me, that place isn't about the food. Oh, and the puddings, you know, like I fishers around the corner do the most incredible sack of torta. And I go there for, you know, 11 o'clock at night. No, you don't. Yeah, for a cup of tea and a sack of torta. I just love it. Um, It's so indulgent and delicious. Um, but yes, it, it's not even so much about the food. I mean, they're not doing anything kind of mind blowing the food. It's the attention to detail that everything is so well thought out. It's so perfect. Um, I love, I'm obsessed with lighting. I think when we were opening this restaurant, lighting was a big thing to me. And I feel like they have it down. Yeah. Everyone looks beautiful in the Walsley <laughs> because of that lighting it's like vanity lighting it just makes everyone look gorgeous I think that's a social responsibility to have a restaurant with very um positive I, lighting yeah I mean you know if 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 I could get people to follow me around with that kind of you lighting you do not need it no way um I feel like my home is actually I've got so many lamps and actually I had a new one arrive today where I'm just constantly like we just need to get I just need to feel at my most relaxed but now I know now I know I need to also be well lit <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> Just like my most radiant always under yeah. amazing light. Candlelight. <laughs> um, okay, so the Wolsey, anywhere else that you... Oh, so many places. Like Trishna next door. Trishna, or always all, all my community. There are so many great restaurants in this community. Um, then there are so many local places, like there's a little Italian place. I, I don't even know the name of it in St. John's Wood. That is just like a family-run Italian yeah. restaurant. I love those kinds of places. Um, you know, the, the, the chefs that I really admire, people like Niaves, Barahan, yeah. uh, Sabor. I haven't actually been, and I've only eaten her food when she was still at, at uh, Barafina. Yeah. And I was obsessed Barafina with her amazing. food. Barafina yeah. is still amazing. We still like that kind of counter dining, um, which I absolutely love. Um, so, yeah. Sabor is delicious. Sabor is amazing. I love um, uh, Morito in uh, on Bethnal Green Road, Road oh, yeah, so yeah. Hackney Road. Yeah. Amazing food. Again, she has just this very maternal way of cooking yeah. that really speaks to me. So yeah, all of those places and more. I mean, I'm happy to eat out l- breakfast, lunch and dinner. <laughs> Why is it just, and it feels like the biggest treat always, but I feel like now we've had this prolonged period where we've not been allowed to, all I can think of now is sitting around a table with friends and having even more appreciation for kind of incredible food. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's the thing I really missed. Even on Monday, I was here and we had a really long day. I was filming something for the Financial Times and it was such a long day. And at that, at the end of such a day, normally I would say to Nadim, oh, should we just go out for dinner? Should we just grab a dinner on the yeah. way home? 
and that's not been possible. Yeah. And that has been a real, you know, restaurants are more than just food. They're, they're culture. I really do believe mm. they are culture makers. They are the fabric of our communities. And without restaurants, there's something really missing this flavor missing from communities there, and, I totally yeah. agree I think because it's that meeting point as well so even if you kind of dine alone it's still a spec you you know you're still you're choosing to do that and to take time for yourself but when you're with friends or whether it's one or five or whatever yeah. there's something that's you know you've really made a point to make that reservation or they're just to you know turn up. they're great spaces for humanity you see all aspects of humanity in restaurants. You know, I've seen grief. I've seen people cry. I've seen people laugh to the point they're almost wetting themselves. I've seen (laughs) people get dumped. I've seen, I mean, we had this awful thing happen. I remember. So uh, the downstairs table that you saw, um, we don't ruin that table for me. No, <laughs> we, we, we sometimes use it as a communal table. So if we're really busy upstairs, say it's a Saturday yeah. night and that table hasn't been booked, then we say, okay, we have a communal table down. So as long as you don't mind sharing that table. So I was on the pass. I was running the pass that night, I was cooking. And there was this very attractive looking couple who came in and they were sitting with their sort of backs to me. And there were two girls sitting on the end of the table who I knew. Um, they work in the industry. And um, anyway, I noticed that the guy had, we just sent out the starters. They'd ordered quite a lot. The starters had gone out. <laughs> and I noticed the guy uh, get up and go upstairs. And I thought, you know, I noticed he'd gone for about maybe eight to 10 minutes. And and then I thought, God, her her food's getting cold and she's not even eating. And that irritates me, obviously, because I want everyone to have everything piping hot as well, because I eat my food really hot. My husband doesn't. I have asbestos tongue. I eat food really, (laughs) really hot. And um, anyway, so you know, then 15 minutes pass. Then I see the girls that I know suddenly looking like they're consoling her. And then I look and she's crying. And this guy had basically had an argument with her, dumped her and, and walked out. And the beautiful thing about that evening was that this girl, Georgia, who I knew and her friend ended up making friends with her and the three of them ended up having dinner together. And they, it was just such a lovely thing. And I love that about restaurants. And I, I also love how there are all these coincidences in restaurants, like that table will suddenly look over here and realize that they grew up with this person <laughs> or like, you know, and you see that. And we always say about this restaurant that it is on our best nights, it never feels like we're doing a restaurant service. It always feels like a great big dinner party. Everyone is chatting to everyone, that table. And we have all these characters. And I'm going to shout out one of my favorite guests, uh, Raymond Coffer and his wife. You know, Raymond's been coming to us. He lives in, in northwest London. He's been coming from day dot. And Raymond is this kind of enthusiastic, you know, lover of fine things and he will walk around and chat to people who maybe don't want to chat to him but he'll be like oh what are you eating oh did you order this I mean he's doing our job for us he's basically our mutra deal he's hosting everyone and I just love that people feel at home here you know you really must yeah Oh, that's that's kind of really sweet because he's obviously going around just making sure everyone is as it's passionate li- as yeah, he is about the restaurant so and lovely. the food. I mean, the kind of evangelical yeah. love that we've got is is just really 
really heartwarming yeah, you know it, it, it does move me sometimes when i think about all these people who've kind of wandered into the landscape of our lives it's incredible yeah and so at the moment you can order um takeaway yeah comfort and joy we are delivering comfort and joy and now we're doing this civilized uh, sunday series so we are ordering we are, we're delivering comfort joy and culture <laughs> Oh my goodness. So on a Sunday, you're doing like a digital, yes. uh, is it like readings from people's books or yeah. Works? So we, so yeah, we're, we're starting a digital civilized uh, Sunday series. So this was something we were already doing in the restaurant. And what it was, was that I felt passionately, we, we used to be closed on a Sunday evening. And I've always felt that this space is more than just about food and drink. And um I wanted it to be a cultural space for people who shared our values of diversity and pluralism to come and be able to tell their stories. And it has just grown and grown. So we've had incredible people like Nitin Sawney, the composer, William Dalrymple, the historian. And they, they kind of come and they either do readings or tell stories or just give talks. And then I create a menu that basically tells the story of their life. And that for me is so exciting because we had this incredible poet and novelist called Tishani Doshi, who was a Ted Hughes nominated uh, poet. She's incredible. And um, she is part South Indian, part Welsh, married to an Italian, but lives in South India on the beach. And to be able to tell her story through food was so exciting for me because the amount of influence. So I remember one of the dishes we did was um, curd rice, which is a very typically South Indian uh, thing made with yogurt and rice that's got tempered curry leaves and everything in it. And we did it with truffle rather than the curry leaves. And we served it in an eggshell. And I remember someone holding it up and her Italian husband was here. And they held up this thing and with the truffle in it and the curd rice. And they went, Tishani, this is your marriage in an eggshell. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved that, yeah. you know. Um, so that's a real pleasure to be able to create. What type of, I'm just trying to think, who, who is deserving enough of having an entire menu of their life? kind of curated for them. We were so excited because just before lockdown, we were about to have uh, Salman Rushdie. And, you know, I'd been on the phone to Salman. We'd been talking about his menu. And he said to me, will you cook some Kashmiri food? Because my, my late mother was Kashmiri. And I, you know, and I, for me, Kashmiri food is very nostalgic. And then, you know, I was asking him about his favorite desserts and then we were reading and I wanted him to read extracts of his books that were very foodie. And there is one um, one scene in one of his books, which is like a comedy sex scene that happens in a spice mill uh, with with lots of pepper that kind of, I think this bag of pepper kind of bursts as they're, they're making love passionately and the spices kind of, um, you know, um, infuse into them, into their waters, into their, their kind of whatever. <laughs> and that's what he decided to, and, he was and, going and to read. So, yeah, he was going to read that and we had, you know, come up with this this Tell dish. me he's going to reschedule. Oh, he is. It's <laughs> postponed. So he said, don't cancel it, postpone it. And I think he's doing that because he wants to eat all this food because yeah, the I'm menu... Sure is so delicious. I mean, we, we did a tasting of the menu and the testing of the menu and it is just really, really wonderful, but it's, it's also rich because of him and he's inspired it. So, yeah. So, I mean, a completely unique menu Mm. every time. 
How often will you be doing them when? Well, we were returns? we were doing them every six weeks. Every six weeks. I was yeah. going to say you do take a day off, right? <laughs> yeah, we take <laughs> it. Oh my god, they're 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 mega hard work, but they're so worth it. And the special thing is to have someone who is a cultural leader, someone who is many people's heroes, to be in a space that's so intimate. intimate for, yeah. Forty-eight people. And you're listening to that person talk. You can literally touch them. And the, most of our guests, um, our people we host, are such generous people. They'll walk around chatting to people during the night. It's a lovely thing. Yeah, really unique. So special. Yeah. Um, and finally, after that really kind of moving moment, I'm just going to ask you, <laughs> tell me about the your fridge situation at home. How many condiments are in there? And then finally, I need to know about your go-to sandwich. Oh, yes. <laughs> So After in, that really moving moment. Entire, I mean, you know, I just said I'm an absolute condiment queen. Um, you know, I come from a culture that is all about pickling, fermenting, making chutneys, sauces, jars, all of that. Oh, my goodness. And in fact, in the book, there's a whole story called The uh, the Pickle Maker, which is about this incredible woman who was just sort of a, a business success late in her years when she became a widow and she had to fend for herself. So she didn't what she knew best which is make pickles and sell them. And I remember going to her house and smelling these incredible smells and seeing all this kind of pickling paraphernalia and being so kind of nosy. And, you know, I must have been about six or seven and she just never got impatient with me. She was so indulgent. But also watching her sell pickles, you know, she would lay them down like bait <laughs> and people would just taste this and, and they'd end up buying everything because it was all so good. She was so persuasive. Um, but yeah, I just love all kinds of pickles and chutneys. I particularly am obsessed with like Indian achars. Like I think lime pickle is one of those really underrated things. My husband loves it. I find it a bit too the wrong way for me. Yeah. Well, there's but so combined. many different, uh, yeah. different things. So for example, what we do here is we make a lime pickle and then we blitz it with butter and we make a lime pickle compound butter. And oh then we goodness. basically pan fry skate and do it with a lime pickle bernoisette. Uh, and and it's, it's really, <laughs> yeah, really I'm yummy. Sold. I'm sure and, I could get uh, So pickles and then chili oils, you know, oh my God, I love having, you know, one of my favorite dishes here is we do a, a congee with roasted scallops and chili oil. And I need, I love congee. I make oh this my a God. lot. Okay. So I need and this you know, and I have a lot of chili oil. Recently what I've been doing, my, my like new secret thing that <laughs> I, I do leaning is. leaning back in. <laughs> Is I make congee, but I make it a quick congee and I yeah. I do it with oatmeal. So Ooh. you do it as if you're going to make porridge. Yeah. And then instead of using milk, you basically use stock. And so you cook it in exactly the same way you would porridge, but then you can put in peas or, you know, sweet corn or broccoli or yeah. whatever you like. And you can serve it with a poached egg and chili oil and it in Crispy 10 minutes, shots. it's ready. Exactly. It's all about texture for totally. me, right? You've got to have the crisp and the, you know, this, that, the other. But it, it really is one of those, my go-to, like if I'm in a rush and I need something really nourishing yeah. and filling, I just make my oatmeal congee, have an egg on top yeah. and, you know, I'm done. Oh, delicious. Okay. So tell me about your sandwich. 
Okay, so my I feel like this is the common ground that everyone can get on board with. Yeah, I think it's really unfair of you to ask me about <laughs> sandwiches because I just love bread. Like anything, anything I can put into my mouth that is wrapped in bread. Um, do you have I a just, bakery that is your go-to? Oh my god! Um, do you know what I love the uh, the um, what are they called? The dusty knuckle uh, loaves are just incredible. Have you had their potato and oh, it's like potato and oat or something like that? And I I got it because that's what was left, and it was amazing I'm like they're adding no. a second level layer I haven't of had that and I love like E5 bakery yeah. I love all bakeries I'm not serious <laughs> I am not bakery specific you know I have stood I remember going to Paris and there's this amazing place um what is it called I can't remember now but I'd been told that their croissants are like the best in the world and they laminate for 36 hours or whatever and I remember uh getting in a queue that snaked all the way around the block. And then I got there and I was so like, I was Tell like, they hadn't sold out. No, I oh. was like a rabbit <laughs> in headlights. Cause I just saw all these pastries and I couldn't think. And you know, like I don't speak French and there were all these people kind of pushing and shoving. And I knew I had to have my turn really fast. And I was so sad. Cause I just went, could I just have a croissant, please? And I walked out of after queuing for almost an hour with one croissant, which <laughs> literally, you know, those kinds of croissants that you put in your mouth and you end up wearing more of because them. Because it's so flaky. That And I was like, I am such an idiot. I completely busted my opportunity. <laughs> I should have bought everything. And, uh, and, you know, by the time, if I had queued again, they would have been sold out of everything. It was that kind but of I thing. I like that you considered it. <laughs> I, I know, I did consider it. Um, but so sandwiches, so I love lots of sandwiches. And you, are you a butter on the bread kind of sandwich? Um, well, I like making toasties and I like making toasties that are fried in butter. Okay, good. <laughs> so really I was just worried that you were going to say no to butter then. <laughs> Your face was More looking butter. Was like... butter. Look, I'm Punjabi. Butter is butter. like, we don't have blood. We have butter yeah, running I feel through like our I, veins. I'm that person. I, it's, it's You're sliced. an honorary Punjabi. <laughs> yeah, I would like to be. Um, so, you know, I, I remember this one sandwich comes out of a story of resourcefulness. So my mother used to make when, you know, we didn't have much. So there was always cauliflower because cauliflowers were cheap. And she would make this cauliflower curry on repeat. And uh, I sort of hated it as a child. But what used to be nice is that when, when it was left over she would smoosh it between slices of white bread, which she would butter on the outside and put cheese, like melty cheese. And then she would cook it in a breville. And 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 before the breville, there used to be those, you know, those handheld ones that are like round. They cut the bread yeah. into round and you hold it over your like gas. I even remember, old enough to remember those. Not. And uh, so she would make those things. And what I remember is how crisp the bread would get and those edges that were like burnished and golden and crisp and almost charred. And what was really nice about it is because the cauliflower had all these spices, including turmeric, the turmeric would bleed through the white bread and dye it golden. Yeah. So you were eating this kind of brick of gold almost <laughs> made out the, of bread. The turmeric to butter, it yeah. was just... 
it was just so so good and so I make this and we I, I remember when we opened the restaurant I put them on the menu for on our brunch brunch menu um because I was so obsessed with this this nostalgic flavor and they were so popular and we would put like all sorts of cheeses like you know gruyere and mozzarella so it really you know that kind of seductive Decadent. pull of the yeah. cheese I love that and then the other one I guess is um oh, another- I love that you're going for two okay this is she's got the real passion <laughs> Montgomery cheddar, kimchi, and pickled cucumber toasty. Yes. Again, it's something. I love kimchi in yeah. everything, and I, I just love And then we also do a bacon here, which we, it's actually a pork belly, which we cook in spices, tamarind, and pineapple overnight. We press it and fry it. And then if you put that, so it's like a BKC uh, bacon, kimchi, and pickled cucumber. I it's need to so try good. this. Really, really good. Because I actually recently got a worktop pizza oven. <laughs> so um, my husband is basically having pizzas maybe four times a week. Ideal. But, yeah, <laughs> but there's just constantly a big bowl of dough on the go. But um, I did kimchi, two types of cheese on top. And then once it came out, chili oil and coriander. And I was like, and I was like, this is, this is delicious. But this is, this this is, is how, yeah, this, this is how, this, this, is, this is how we ethos. cook. Yeah. This is exactly <laughs> it. You know, we, we do a dish here, which is kimchi royals. It comes out every time Jersey royals come into season. And it is like patatas bravas via Korea because rather than, um, you know, um, salsa, it has kimchi. Rather than aioli, it has Japanese mayonnaise, peanuts, prawn crackers, um, you know, oh sliced goodness. chilies, spring onions, sesame seeds. It is just one of those really, really delicious things that you have a cold beer in your hand and you have a plate of kimchi royals and you just can't stop. Is that April? I'm trying to think when yeah, Jersey soon. Royals come back. <laughs> like, yeah. okay. this, is, this could work out time-wise. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, that's, I'm like salivating. I don't know if I can get this last bit out, but um, thank you so much. I'm desperate to come in and eat everything that is on the menu. And thank Bring you. my friends and hopefully join the family here at Chaconi because this has just been such a lovely afternoon with you. So thank you so much. Thank Thank you for having me. It's been so wonderful sort of salivating with you. <laughs> Thank you for joining me this week on The Filling. You can follow me at Anna Barnett Cooks on Instagram for exclusive visuals of my guests' fabulous kitchens and for the recipe to recreate their go-to sandwiches. And of course, subscribe to The Filling on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. The music for today's podcast was recorded by Pony Bones. Pony Bones. <laughs>